Ephesians. I'm now realizing that I don't have my glasses, so things may get interesting, but we're all going to be okay, all right? You're there to help me. You got it in front of you. It'll be just fine, all right? So turn to Ephesians. We're going to look at chapter 4, Ephesians, closer to the back than the front. So start at the middle and start flipping to the back, and you'll hit Ephesians. If you need to, you can do what I oftentimes do. You can just look at the table of contents in the front, and it'll say Ephesians and tell you what page to turn to. No shame in that game, all right? So Ephesians chapter 4. A couple of things that I'll tell you as you're turning there. One is this. I almost forgot to announce today, and our kids' life directors would have strangled me, and maybe you would have strangled me next week, not knowing this, coming unprepared, that we have a fifth Sunday next week, all right? And so uh, it's kind of apparently becoming a practice for us, and I think it's a healthy one and a good one, uh, that when we have a fifth Sunday, we bring our kids in here, all right? And so um, kids will be in here in service with us next Sunday. Um, I think it's great for them to get to sit next to, thank you so much, beautiful. I can say that to her, she's my wife. If you say it, I'm going to come after you. Anyways, um, so next Sunday, kids in here with us, I think it's very beneficial for them to be with you, their primary disciples, and, and worship alongside you, and you're thinking, well, yeah, but sometimes me trying to worship while they're beside me looks more like me doing a whole lot of this, and that's okay, too. They see you efforting to point their direction towards the King of Kings, and that's a good thing, all right? And so they'll be in here with us next Sunday. We'll try to put together some thoughts that'll be engaging for them and help them track with us, okay? But I want to make sure that you're aware of that. There's that. I didn't forget. Thank goodness, all right? Um, so several, several years ago, um, I, I was probably at the time 12, all right, and uh, I was hanging out with my older cousin and his brother, my younger cousin, and one of our mutual friends, and so the four of us were hanging out, and my cousin, the older one, got frustrated with, got angry at uh, our mutual friend who lived down the street, and so um, they started to have an argument, and as, as things progressed, it looked like we might have a little bit of a rolling around in the grass. It looked like a fisticuffs was coming, all right? And uh, they started yelling at each other and saying things that they probably shouldn't have said. And I'll never forget my older cousin. He was a huge Dallas Cowboys fan back in those days. He had on his Dallas Cowboys hat, and our mutual friend who was in this argument with him reached across in an instant and snatched his Dallas Cowboys hat off his head, and as he screamed something at him, I don't know, remember what he said, but as he screamed at him, he threw his hat down on the ground in the dirt. What a sign of disrespect, right? And my cousin, in the heat of anger, yelled out back to this guy and said, you can't hurt that hat, it's made of steel! And I'll never forget myself and the younger cousin and the mutual friend all instantaneously dying in laughter, right? The argument was over. There was nothing else to fight about. We were like, dude, it's, I mean, I hear what you're saying, but it's not made of steel, right? It's, it's, I saw the hat before you put it on. I saw it crumple under his foot. It's not made of steel, right? But in his anger, in his moment, in his desire to express something that would adequately state his frustration and his rage towards this guy, what he came out with was, you won't hurt my hat because it is made of steel. Crazy, right? Except that <laughs> you've probably never told anybody that your hat's made of steel. I'm just guessing, okay? But I bet you might have had a moment where you've been so angry that you said something you didn't plan to say, Right? I bet maybe you've had a moment where anger spoke louder than your pre-programmed filtered thoughts did and something that you didn't really mean as loud as you intended came out really loud, right? 
You said that thing, and, and maybe it was to your spouse, and as soon as it came out of your mouth, when it got out here in the open air, it all of a sudden would look so sour to you, and you went, oh, no. <laughs> it was sobering and, and awakening for you. You went, oh, I said that. Right. Maybe it was to a kid, and you saw them wilt because you would let frustration speak louder than heart and thought and consideration. See, it's, it's true for all of us. It's wired into our humanity that so often... Our anger and frustration has such an intricate, tight link to our communication. That when we're angry, be it down deep angry and nobody knows, or be it way up on the surface angry and everybody can tell because you're yelling about your still hat. Whichever one it is, when we are angry, we're told in Scripture that we're wired such that if we're not careful, our anger will dictate and lead our words. We're going to see Paul speak directly to these two areas of life and how they're joined together today as we continue to study through Ephesians. Now, as we're studying Ephesians, I've encouraged you, challenged you, begged you as your pastor to commit this verse to memory, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and we sometimes recite it together. So we're going to do that today. Let's just go ahead and get that verse up on the screen, right? So that'll help us out. We'll all have it, okay? Now, I'm trusting you that at the 12, 13 week mark, you've got it. You don't need all the words. So I've just got the first letter of each word from the verse up here. All right. Now I got a feeling this may confuse me more than help me. So if I get off, you're going to carry it, Dublin Bible Church. All right. But we're going to try to say this verse together with the first letter from each word. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 1, 2, 3, go. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I'm, I'm just telling y'all, y'all killed that, okay? Right? Like, uh, you need to memorize all your verses like that from now on because you're doing it. Good job. It's this truth, this fact that God has absolutely re-identified us. He's reshaped us. He's remade us by his grace in our lives. And this is a fact that we're praying and asking God to help us trust. Not just help us know on an intellectual level, but help us trust. And as with any other person or factor in life, we know that we trust it when? When we act on it. We know that we trust it not just when we can recite it. We know that we trust it when we live it. Right? You can go to a great doctor and they can give you a spot-on diagnosis and a perfect plan for treatment. But if you don't trust them enough to move forward with taking that treatment plan, then it's not really trust. <laughs> you're seeking out advice or opinion, but you're not trusting them with your care. Right? Parents, when your children know what you're telling them to do, they might even know it's the right thing to do. But when they haven't yet done it, they haven't yet trusted your leadership. Right? And so we want to know not just what has Jesus done in us, what is this beautiful, wonderful fact of him recreating us by his grace, but we also want to know how is it that we can live in that? How can we flesh that out in everyday life? God is so good to us that he doesn't just call us to live in our new Christ-given identity, but that he also tells us how. Wouldn't it be so frustrating if you're given a command but not given any insight on how to fulfill it, right? Think about an employer saying, do you feel this? Out? Do this, right? Accomplish this by the end of the day, and they've never trained you on how to do it. Our God doesn't do that. He gives us, in Ephesians, the second half, a lot of specifics and details on this is how you live out this wonderful opportunity of a grace-transformed life. 
That's what we're going to sit back down in. In chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 25. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, a church that had put their trust in Jesus but was being led astray into some different thoughts. So he's writing this letter to correct them. He says in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, it's, it's old and it's cliche, but it's good Bible study. When we see the word therefore, we need to ask, what's that therefore? <laughs> the word therefore is always making an argument predicated on what's already been stated. The word therefore always points back to previous argumentation to build the new statement. Right? So when he says, therefore, he's referring back to what he's just said. He's told us in verse 22, there's this command for us to put off our old self, to get rid of the old us and the old way that we used to live life because Jesus has recreated us. And instead of living that old life, he said, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, right? in the image of Jesus. Right? And so we're called, put off the old you, live in the new you that is Jesus indwelling you. Let that live. And as if we were to look at Paul and go, okay, Paul, but how? Now he's going to unpack some specifics. And he says, therefore, because you're called to put off the old, put on the new, here's the first thing that I'll instruct you and lead you to do. Put away falsehood and speak the truth with your neighbor. Right? Speak the truth. Now, there's a lot of ways we can get sideways with this command, right? We're going to see that in just a little bit. All right? He's going to say a little more about the things that we say. You see with the Apostle Paul that his thinking is not always linear from one point to the next in a straight line. His, his thought process is often cyclical. One thought, move to this one, move back around, and we wind up back where we started. You're going to see he's going to talk more about how we say what we say in just a few verses. But for now, he says, hey, put away falsehood. Don't be false. And instead, speak the truth with one another. Because you are members of one another. What Paul is doing here is he's appealing to our sense of unity. He's appealing to the fact that we are together united and saying, listen, that's who you are together. So why would you be fictitious with each other? Why would you be false? Why would you try to shade things? Why would you try to present something other than that which is true? Right, because when he says members here, he's not talking about country club members. This is the way we tend to think sometimes about church membership. He, he's talking about members of the same body, arms and legs and ears and, and nose hair. And, and I don't know why I just said nose hair, but he's right. He, all the stuff that make up the body, probably because I've got too many of them, just being honest. Right? But, right, but he's saying, listen, all the stuff that joins together to make one whole being, that's who you are together. And so think about that and realize that. And I urge you from the person of Jesus and what he's done in you, don't present each other with falsehood, but instead speak truth. Right now, there's a lot of ways we can present falsehood. We can present falsehood by just clearly, boldly lying. We try to present ourselves as a person that we're not, or a person that we hope to be but aren't yet. We can present ourselves as our situation is better than it really is, right? We can present falsehood to each other when we're asked, hey, how are you doing? And we say, oh, I'm fine. <laughs> fine, I was taught a long time ago, stands for feelings I'm not expressing. Hmm, you're right, so it means nothing, right? <laughs> That's free. You can take that with you. I didn't plan that one, right? 
Right? But somebody goes, hey, how are you? And you say, fine. And listen, I want to give room for the fact that we don't all know each other as well as we might like. And every moment may not be the right moment to just go, here's what's really happening with me and put it out on the table. There's room for those truths. But understand, those truths don't nullify the call of God in his word for us to be sincere people living authentically with each other. When somebody goes, hey, how's it going? <laughs> Maybe you go, hey, not, not the best. Can I talk to you about that later? I had somebody right before service ask me, hey, man, I'm just checking on you because I care about you. How are you, you okay? <laughs> I said, man, I really appreciate you asking. Like, they kind of tiptoed in, like didn't want to offend pastor. I was like, no, I really appreciate you asking. I'm going to be great, right? Which means, hey, I'm a little frazzled mentally at the moment. My alarm clock went off at five like I meant for it to, but not with a sound like I intended it to. It just sat there silently doing lights, and that doesn't wake Pastor JJ up, all right? <laughs> so I'm two hours behind schedule today, all right? I, I've, I've been battered with thoughts today that came out of left field out of nowhere from the past, and I've, probably because we're talking about this passage, and, and I've been wrestling with the Lord on that. So they go, hey, how are you? And the honest answer was not, let me talk to you about all my problems. <laughs> now wasn't the exact moment for that. We'd still be talking. But the honest answer also wasn't, man, I'm great. I'm perfect. Right? The honest answer was, man, I'm good, and I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good. Right? Are we honest with each other? When somebody goes, hey, what's, what's your take on, on this in my life? Do we round off the edges? Right? Not for the sake of being kind and gentle with them, but for the sake of saving ourselves awkwardness and tension. Do we not say the, the 2% that's left at the end that, that would be most helpful for them to hear? Right? When we present each other with falsehood, we've got to understand that we're ultimately also wounding ourselves. Right, Because listen, when the leg is injured and you walk with a limp for a long time because the leg hurt, guess what happens if you walk with a limp long enough in that leg? Your back gets out of line and your back hurts. <laughs> Anybody not ever gone outside and had fun because you had a headache? <laughs> it's like there's lots of opportunity out there for work to be done, responsibility you've got, or maybe you've got a fun day planned and water slides and jet skis and whatever it is for you, and you go, I just can't because my head hurts. The stuff happening inside your brain, the pain that you're having there, doesn't physically stop your arms and legs and feet from moving and going and doing and accomplishing. But one part of the body in enough pain sets a chain reaction through the rest of the body and limits it. And when we are false with each other, we limit the impact and the activity and the reach of the entire body. Now, that's a faith walk with Jesus and how exactly to flesh that out and express that. Yes, but he calls us into walking with him by faith. We don't deny what we can't exactly understand and exactly apply and say, I just won't. We go, I'm going to step into figuring that out with Jesus. How are we maybe prone to speaking something less than the truth with each other? How are we prone to speaking falsehood? He said, having put falsehood away, speak truth to each other. So he's talking about the way that we communicate, the way that we talk, right? And he's going to cyclical thought right here into this idea of anger. And you see what he says in verse 26. He says, be angry, which is interesting. <laughs> Need to make sure you don't skim over that. Don't skip that. He says, be angry. Right? That's not the emphasis point of the verse, but it is a point in the verse. Be angry and... <laughs> It's not be angry or, it's be angry and, so these two things are definitively attached. Be angry and do not sin. Be angry 
and do not sin. He goes on to say, don't let the sun go down on your anger in doing so that you give an opportunity to our enemy. Can I just ask you, do you have things in your life that you're angry about? Right? It could have been weird if somebody had been like, yes, Lord. Right? Like, Let me tell you. Right? I mean, it would have been fine. We would have, we would have been just great. But I'm just saying. But do you, do you have things in your life that if you let yourself sit there long enough, you go, man, I'm really pretty stewed up about that. I'm pretty ticked off, if I'm honest. He says, be angry, but don't sin. How do we know the kind of anger that we are supposed to have? When he tells us, be angry, I think what he's saying is that he wants us to have righteous anger. Okay, how do you know the good anger from the bad anger? How do you know righteous anger from selfish anger? First of all, healthy anger is rightly motivated. It's not motivated by my pride, by my sense of loss, by me, 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 me. Healthy anger is motivated by injustice. It's motivated by things like the glory of God being mocked or tried to be hijacked and stolen for the glory of people. It's motivated by the things that would cause God to be angry. In our house, we one time years ago, I remember the word hate came out of my mouth about something, and my kids, rightfully so, I'm so excited about it, challenged me and said, but Dad, you said we don't hate. And I had to pause for a second because I hadn't thought through that. And and it was just like a gift from God in that moment. It just came. And I said, well, we want to hate the things that God hates. We want to hate the things that God hates. And we don't want to hate anything else. So we hate things that abuse people. We hate things that would seek to destroy people. We hate our enemy, the devil, because he hates God and hates God's people and would seek to destroy us. We want to hate what God hates. We want to have righteous anger at those things. But hear this, whoever that person is, that's the face behind the thing that drives your anger. God does not hate that person. God does not store up bubbling over liquid hot anger towards that person that you wrestle with feeling anger towards. We want to be angry about the things that would anger the heart of God. So firstly, healthy anger is to be rightly motivated. And secondly, I believe we're told in this passage, he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He's saying, don't go and sleep on it, knowing that you're anger. Don't let anger sit there and you just live in it, dwell in it. Refuse to process it. Refuse to talk to God and others about it. Refuse to seek reconciliation. Don't do nothing with your anger except just let it sit and cook and just keep on living life. When he says be angry, it's rightly motivated, but it's also promptly released, right? Because even when we hold on to the right kind of anger, if we coddle it and hold on to long enough, we're giving opportunity for Satan to turn it into something sour, something skewed, something that doesn't honor God. If we serve a God that we can celebrate and sing our hearts out to because he is abounding in steadfast love, quick to patience and slow to anger, we don't honor him if we're quick to cling to ours. He says, be angry by things that are rightly motivated and be angry, but then be quick to process, quick to process with God and release that anger. Let it move on. Now, listen, I get it that that's easier said than done. I get that when we have been relationally robbed by others, 
I get it when we've been emotionally abused by others. I get when things have absolutely been heinously offensive towards us. It's hard to let go of anger. Jesus didn't call us to things that are easy. He called us to things that are helpful and will bring healing and bring his glory in our lives. He didn't say you're going to get it perfect. He didn't say that it happens in the snap and you never have to revisit it and again give it over to God. We sang today, I I lay it down at the altar over and over. Forgiveness is 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 a momentary, it's a right now. I make a choice to forgive, but you may have to make that decision again seven minutes from now about that same thing. No, I've forgiven that. I let that go. I'm not picking that up. Right? He says, listen, be angry. You will be angry. When you're angry, does your anger lead you to sin? He says, don't let that happen. Check your anger for right motivation and then process your anger promptly and get rid of it. Move on to what's next, right? In that scenario, in that circumstance. Because when we don't, and I want to make sure we don't miss this, he says you give opportunity to the evil one. Right? When you cling to anger, when you coddle your anger, you're interacting in such a way that gives opportunity to Satan. And listen, there's this, there's this, I'm just going to say this. All right, personal hobby horse, but take it for a second. I think a pastoral hobby horse. When we hear about the evil one or the devil or Satan, is there this thing in us sometimes that tends to think of that as like childish and immature and like, right, this little, this little fake guy that walks around with horns and a pointy tail and a pitchfork and whatever, right? Listen, that's not Satan. Satan's way more crafty than that. And if Jesus is real, who we've not seen with our eyes, why would we doubt the reality of our enemy that that Jesus tells us about? He wants to ruin us as a church. He wants to ruin you and your impact for the glory of God and the joy that you personally have in God. And when you cling to anger, you are opening your front door to him and going, hey, the door's open if you ever want to come in. Now, if somebody just said to you on the street, if you were just walking by and somebody said, hey, you want to you partner up with Satan? <laughs> Stranger on the street just grabbed you by your elbow and went, hey, you want to partner with the devil? You would go, what are you talking about? Right? You would hightail it out of there. Rightfully, you should. But the word of God is telling us that when we take the action of holding on to and gripping our anger, when we allow it to sit and we don't move it out of our souls, that's exactly what we're choosing to do is leave the door open for him. That's a big deal, church. So if you're here today and you're sitting here with anger, listen, you're you're not alone, I'm sure. And you're not Somebody that's being beat down with God's word. We're not looking down upon you. We want you to live in shame. We want you to know there's a God who's big enough to help you handle it and walk with you in it. That he cares about your offense even more than you do, believe it or not. So he says, listen, be truthful with each other. Don't give each other falsehood. And when you're angry, do not sin. Don't give opportunity to the devil. He's going to move then (laughs) into another expression of this change that God has made in us. Verse 28 says this. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Look, he says... Let the thief no longer steal or take. And so many of us would automatically just go, well, that passage doesn't apply to me. (laughs) I'm not a thief, right? 
I don't take things, but, but listen, when we think about thievery, what is it? Thievery is taking something that doesn't belong to you, right? In its simplest form, it's taking something not yours. It's taking something dishonestly. What is it that maybe we're prone to taking from other people? Their recognition and their glory in the workplace. Their recognition and affection that's coming their way in the family. I position my place, myself, to make sure that I'm seen so that I will get the love, so that I will get the attention that that maybe would have been theirs. The time that maybe should rightfully belong to my family, I'm I'm tempted to steal that for myself because I really like my fill-in-the-blank. I bet the Spirit told you what it is in the blank. I bet He will. What would we take from others that's not truly ours? What would we shadily take from another? He says, listen, don't be one who takes through dishonesty, but be one who labors hard, who works hard. Why? So that you could produce something, so that you could give something. So the picture here is that this life transformed by grace doesn't justify its act of taking things that aren't its own, which, by the way, is something we're probably really prone to do when we are angry. When I'm angry, even if it's just anger, I will let just anger justify my unjust response. He says, don't do that. Don't think that just because somebody's offended you, just because somebody's wounded you, that you can be a taker. Instead of trying to figure out where you can take, figure out how you can work hard to give. Figure out how you can labor hard to give. I'll never ever forget, it's one of my most formative memories. As a child, we were at a drugstore, a pharmacy, and I'd asked my mom for a piece of bubble gum that was in the bucket. If y'all remember, the big bucket of bubble gum, and the little rag was sitting right there, I said, and she said no. And somehow, by the time we walked out the front door, I was putting a piece of gum in my mouth, and she hadn't paid for it. <laughs> I had just reached in and taken that thing for myself. My mom promptly turned me around, walked me back in, made me apologize with tears in my eyes. I felt horrible about it. She paid for the gum. We went home, had a long talk. I was a little kid, and I still remember now that it's wrong to take something that's not mine. (laughs) Took that one time. right? And as the presence of Christ would, would continue to grow and move and shape us internally, we want to become people who don't see quick opportunities to grab, but who see opportunities to work hard to give. I think about a relative, a great uncle in my life that I used to see at church every Sunday. Hadn't thought about this until right now. We, we called him Pop. Pop was always at church, and he always had about five of those little packs of juicy fruit stick gum, and he was just passing those things out like candy. Love to see Pop, right? Went in to see Pop, going to get the juicy fruit every time. He'd give me two pieces. If enough of the kids had already come in, he knew he had some extra, he'd give me two. Pop was my boy, right? He's a giver. He's not looking how to grab. He's looking for how to give. Listen, in your life, which are you? We fight to take and we fight to reach and we fight to grab when we're not secure in the fact that we're already held tightly in the hand of God. That we already have everything that we ultimately need in Jesus. Then we we don't trust that. We scramble to give. We scramble to take. We're tempted towards dishonest gain. 
But when we trust that we have everything in him and we see the Jesus who left perfect peace and holiness in heaven where people were singing his name, where angels were bowing down, holy, holy, holy. It was a rock concert in his honor nonstop. He left perfection for us and labored hard for 33 years and labored aggressively on a cross as his life was torn apart, as his body was put on display for everyone to see as he died and rose again. He labored hard to give. And if you've tasted that love of Jesus, it should sprout up in our souls to go, I want to figure out how to labor hard to be a giver and not a grabber. Right? He says, listen, let the thief no longer take, let the thief give. And then he said, we just read, let no corrupting talk. So you're seeing this cyclical thought again. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. When he's saying corrupting, he's talking about that which defiles, that which makes dirty, that which makes impure or imperfect. He's saying, don't let that kind of talk come out of your mouth. That may be a word of a flattery that you give to someone so that they're appreciating you more even though there wasn't sincerity in what you said. It may be a word of demeaning someone. It may be a coarse joke. It may be double entendre. It may be making light of the things that Jesus died for. Right? But the people of Jesus are called to talk in such a way that reflects the purity of our God and a gratitude for his salvation. He says, don't talk in corrupt ways. Instead, he leads us in how to talk. He gives us three qualifications. Only such as is good for building up. Right, so I only want to say things that are going to help you grow up. Now, sometimes hard words are what it takes to soften hearts and help you grow. So he's not saying I only say nice, sweet Mr. Rogers things with a Disney bow on the end. Right? But he says, I'm not going to say it to you if it's not going to benefit you growing up into Jesus. I'm going to refrain from that only if it would be beneficial to you. Then he says, what else? As fits the occasion. Man, this might be huge, right? Right, question number one, assessment of what I'm going to say and does it reflect Jesus? Is it true? Yep. Could it benefit them? Uh-huh. Does it fit the occasion? What is Paul saying here? I think if he brought, boiled it down to 2023 Jason language, he would say, don't be emotionally, relationally tone deaf. Don't say truth to people, even truth that could be beneficial in the moment that is the absolute wrong moment. Some of you were here last week when I mentioned that I was making an effort at physical fitness and eating a better diet. And you heard as my wife, not verbally, but with her hands, clapped out loud to communicate that that was the right decision. Right? Right? She's right to want her husband to be in better shape. She's right to be proud that I would do that. It was an interesting moment for a celebration. Right? <laughs> Now, really, all it's been is something for she and I to joke about. We, of course, went to lunch afterward. I asked the waiter, hey, man, so if you got a girlfriend, yeah, what if she said this to you? Like, we've had a lot of fun, okay? It's perfectly fine. But you see, the point is this, that just because it's true and just it can be beneficial doesn't mean that now is the moment for it to come across my lips. Right, that there may be times in my parenting of my children, there may be a truth that they need to hear, and I may be eager for them to hear it, but if it's going to break their spirit... If it's going to exasperate them, then now's not the moment, right? And sometimes what happens for us as parents is I have to get it out right now. And that impulse that I have to say it now has more to do with me than it does with care for them. It has to do with I will be heard, not with you will be cared for, right? That can be true with friends, family, whoever is now the time. He says it needs to be beneficial. 
It needs to be beneficial to the one hearing. It needs to build them up. It needs to fit the occasion. Lastly, that it may give grace to those who hear. Right? The end objective, the end goal, our hope in everything that we would say to each other is that they don't walk away with a head hung low, but that they walk away feeling favored, cared for, hopeful. Right? Is that the way that we speak to each other? Is that the way we speak to family and friends? Maybe it's not that we're lying. Maybe it's not we're presenting incessant falsehood. Maybe it's that we just dwell in the realm of the superficial so that we never have to enter into this world. What if we decided, what if we intentionally said, I'm going to obey and honor Jesus. I'm going to be a person who speaks words to other people that are these types of words. What might God do through us if we just decided to take him up at his word on that? Now, he's going to show us, I believe, maybe the biggest negative outcome if we don't take these verses seriously. Verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We'll just stop there for just long enough just to hear this. All sin is rebellion against God. All sin is ugly to God. All sin, I believe, hurts the heart of God. But what he's saying here is don't grieve the very spirit that lives in you, the one that has been given to you. We read earlier in Ephesians as a non-refundable down payment. He's given himself to you and said, I'll never take myself back from you. I give me to you. Don't cause him grief in his soul because he loves you that much and yet you deny him in the way that you speak in the way that you let your anger come out. Never forget, I may have shared before, my mom made some divinity one time. You know divinity, the white candy, they make it at Christmas a lot, seems like. I don't know if that's true, I just said it. Right? That's when I ate it. My mom made some divinity. It didn't set up, it didn't get hard, so it was like this thick marshmallowy goodness of goo. And I remember eating it and just loving it. And I was like, Mom, I'm more divinity. I remember she made some. And it did what it was supposed to do and set up and turned into that chalky, rocky stuff. You know what I'm talking about? And I, I took a bite of that and I didn't like it. I'll never forget running to my room, sitting in my room, and bawling my eyes out. <laughs> I don't know who cued Is there a laugh screen behind me that says laugh and clapter? I was, my heart was so broken because I had begged my mom and told her how much I love this. And I couldn't stand that stuff. <laughs> it broke my little heart, my little mama's boy heart. Still a mama's boy. Love you, mama. It broke my little heart to think about hurting my mom. And as much as I love my mom and as much as you may love yours, the spirit of God, God himself, indwells you, secures you, seals you for all of the favor of God and the salvation now and in the ages to come. That's who he is. And the Bible says don't grieve him. Don't take it lightly when you would grieve his heart. We'll finish out this couple of verses. He cycles back to anger and he gives us a little bit more about how we would avoid grieving the spirit. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. He just listed off, I believe it's six things there. They're all related to anger. Bitterness is, is crockpot anger. It's slow under the surface, boiling. It's coddled anger that may not be apparent up here, but if we were to drive a, a stake into the core of your heart, there is some angry stuff going on there. That's bitterness. 
Wrath is explosive anger. It's hate when it just does bubble over and here it comes and it's flying out in the moment. Right? Clamor is this, this public crying out for recognition that I've been wronged. It's, hey, see how wrong they are. Right? It's, I've got to be recognized. Slander is when I speak and try to defame someone else's reputation. It's, I'm mad at you, so I'll speak things about you. And those things may be bold and they may be newspaper headlines. Or those things may be slight little adjustments to the things that I say about you. It may look kind, but I'll say it in a slight little way that somebody will hear something negative and think ill of you. Because I'm angry at you. He says, leave that slander behind. He says, leave malice behind. Malice is the actual heart of evil and ill intent for another because I'm angry at you, so I have ill intentions for you. Maybe you would say today, hey, I've really been hurt by this person. But, but, but God, I would never go and harm that person. I would never seek Bad circumstances for them. I would never carry that out. But at the end of the day, do you daydream in your head of hopefully they get some? Like, I'm not going to bring it into their life, but man, I would love it if they were humble. That sounds like seedlings at least of malice. Seedlings of a heart that's forgotten that I have betrayed and offended the holy God who has poured lavishly on me his forgiveness. And yet I'm saying you have offended me in an infinitely smaller way and I hope you get what's coming to you. When we realize that we are people that by the grace of God will not get what was coming to us because Jesus absorbed it at the cross, we ought to be people who hope that those who have offended us don't get what's coming their way. Are we people who replay scenarios in our mind thinking about how things could turn out negatively for others? Or are we replaying things in our minds thinking about how they would come and grovel at our feet in an apology and attempt to reconcile and we would hold it over them? Or are we people who say, I hope that they experience the fullness of Christ in their life and I hope for all reconciliation that's possible here and now. And I trust that if they know Jesus, there's going to be perfect reconciliation out there. Every one of your enemies, you will be better friends with them than you've ever been one day in glory if you both know Jesus. Our hatred and our coolness towards those others seems to make not a lot of sense in light of that. It says, let all of those things be put away from you. And instead, verse 32, be kind to one another. Doesn't that sound so simple? He doesn't give some big complex explanation of how exactly to precisely do it. He just goes, hey... Ask yourself this question, what would be a kind thing I could do for them? And then do that. <laughs> would it be kind if I took their hat and threw it on the ground? No, so I won't do that. Would it be kind if I clapped out loud when my husband said he? I'm just kidding, okay? <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for that later. I'm so sorry. The Lord has blessed me with a good wife. All right, here we go. What's the kind thing? Do that. Forgive one another how? As God in Christ has forgiven you. Do you know? I, I bet you do up here on an intellectual level. But do you really believe and trust deep down in your heart? Do you know that Jesus forgives you with zero reservation? He's never going like, okay, I guess I'll forgive you. And you have to wrestle it out of his feet. You don't. He forgives you with zero explanation on your part where you go, well, I'll explain why I got tripped up by sin. And if my explanation's good enough, you'll give me forgiveness. No, he says, I've already died to purchase your forgiveness. It's yours. Every time you sincerely come and ask Jesus for forgiveness, you know what you get every single time? Full hearted forgiveness. 
Now, that's not easy for us because we're not him. But he says, forgive that way. Forgive that way. Does it mean we still have to be best friends or we need to keep working together or we need to keep whatever together? Right? We got mad at Buddy because the hunting club went south and he didn't pay the thing. And I thought he should have paid it here and he didn't know. Blah, 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 blah. Does it mean we got to get a hunting club together next year? No. But it means I want him to fully feel and experience the forgiveness of Jesus through my interactions with him. It means that I treat him in such a way that he owes me nothing relationally. Man, he might even owe me something financially. <laughs> but I'm not going to hold that over him in such a way that he owes me relationally. Because Jesus, who I had rebelled against, who I was an alien from, who I had set myself opposed to and against and far from, he sought me out to wrap me up in his arms. Forgive each other. Listen, if you've been a part of a church long enough, you've had your feelings hurt. And if you haven't, hold on. If you're faithful to be part of a church long enough, your feelings will be hurt. I'm not hoping that for you. I just know the reality is that we're called to the intimate kind of association and fellowship in which our brokenness is going to poke each other a little bit sometimes. It'll happen. The question is not whether or not we will be hurt. The question is not whether we might be the ones hurting each other. The question is how will we respond? In Christ, we have the capability, the opportunity, and the obligation as we've been commanded to be people who speak truth, to be people who act in kindness, to be people who put away the anger, not by just denying it in a fake way, but who process it in a real healthy way with God and others, and we put it away and we live in kindness and we choose to full-heartedly forgive. You say, well, they, I just forgave them of that last week, and now they're back here going, hey, I'm sorry. Forgiveness. That's who Jesus is. That's who I want to be as your pastor. That's who I hope you will be. I think the question of application that's biggest for our hearts today as we finish is just this. This kind of life that we've read about, these things we want to put away, and these things we want to put on. First of all, do you want to be that kind of person for the glory of God? And secondly, are you striving not intending with my mind, not setting, yeah, hopefully one day I'll be that. But are you striving, walking intentionally towards being that person, towards putting away the sinful self and putting on the Christ-like self? How does God want to point you more and more in that direction today? I'm going to trust His Spirit to tell you. If you're here today and you hear a whole list of things to do and not do, and that sounds like a lot, good. You've just heard of, what we're called to, and, and we're never going to do that perfectly. That's why we need Jesus. If you don't know him today, come find me when we're done. Please, I won't force you into anything, won't push you into anything. Just want to help you think about Jesus. If I can do that, I would love to. Mark on that card near your seat. You'd like to speak with a pastor this week. Lord willing, I'll get with you. If you don't know Jesus, why? Because, man, he leads our lives, and he has every right to lord over us, but he's a good lord. He's not leading us in ways that would bind us and constrict us. He's leading us into ways that would open up fields of freedom to us, to live in and dwell in. If you don't know him in that way, please don't do nothing with that. If you do know him in that way, how has his word today meant to reach into your soul and guide you? Let's pray. God. Your word is encouraging to me, God. I confess 
for my brothers and sisters that I now know more than I ever used to that I wrestle with anger. God, I just I want to be like Christ. Jesus, when you displayed righteous anger and turned over tables, I want to know how to have that protective love, that love that cares about your honor and your glory. But you also sat on the hilltop and wept over those same people because they wouldn't trust in the Father's plan. And I want to have that heart. I pray you would help us to have that heart. For even the one that offends us most often, most vehemently, that we would be able to simultaneously acknowledge offense and also brokenheartedly hope for them to walk with you rightly and for them to experience true forgiveness from us. God, there's, there's a thousand different relational tributaries that this command runs and trickles down into, and we don't know how to do that just right all the time. I thank you that you don't call us to know. You just call us to follow and trust. God, would you help us to do that? I pray, and I'm asking with every bit of faith I know how to muster, that you would lead us by your Spirit to live as those kind of people this week, that there would be words of repentance, that there would be words of forgiveness, that there would be words of reconciliation, that there would be words of confession to each other about, I've said this thing, and I said these things, and I know that didn't honor Jesus, and I want you to know I'm striving for a different approach. God, I pray that you would lead us by your Spirit to actively worship as we live your Word and not just hear your Word. Please do that, God. And God, I pray that we would see you in that. We'd be encouraged by you in that. Lead us in repentance that we might find sweet joy just on the other side as we walk in the freedom that you have given us. Jesus, thank you for your life, your death, and your life again. Let us leave to worship. We ask all this for your name, Jesus. Amen. I love you. I'm for you. I'm taking a little bit of a step out here, so I may get in trouble for this, but I don't think so, and I hope not. Um, Edwina, is Edwina here by chance? I don't think so. So Edwina, um, one of our leaders, leader of our host team, um, that, that man, she just loves people and loves Jesus so radically, um, has been having for a while a lot of back pain. Um, she was aware of three fractures in three different vertebrae in her back. And uh, just this week, the pain amped up and increased, and she ended up in the emergency room and found out about, I believe, it's another additional um, three or four vertebrae that also have cracks. And so she's up to like six or seven vertebrae in her back that now have fractures in them. Um, and I don't know much about <laughs> the spine, but I got a feeling that's pretty bad. She's in a whole lot of pain, and um, she's not saying this. She didn't say this, but I just know what, what the enemy likes to do and, and make us think that we're also in hopelessness or isolation or whatever he can tell us. Can, can we just take a minute and pray for her as a church? Can we just pray for Miss Edwina um, because she's our friend, she's our sister. And um, man, I, I'll lead us, but, but please don't do that thing. And I'm so guilty of it so many times. Please don't just sit and listen to somebody pray. Pray actively with me in your spirit. Agree with the Lord. Let's, let's lift her up and pray for her real quick and then we'll go, okay? God, I do thank you so much for Edwina. I thank you for 
the peaceful spirit that she carries and the way that she initiates with people and the way that she has just a courage to do that. Thank you for her heart to want to lead us to being a church that makes sure people know we are so glad that they would be with us. I pray she would be encouraged in that work. And God, right now I'm asking you, please make sense of all this pain that she is in. God, please, God, would you heal it? God, you can reconnect bones that are separated. I don't know if that's what you will to do and want to do in this moment, but, but God, I know you can. And I'm asking you to. God, I'm asking you to give doctors wisdom about how to give her greater relief than what they're able to offer at this point. God, I'm asking, maybe more importantly than anything, that in the midst of great pain, Edwina would also have great comfort as she knows your nearness and as she experiences your proactive love through our lives. God, show us how we can encourage her. Show us how we can serve her. And prompt us by your spirit. Let us be restless if we would be forgetful to pray for her. Remind us, God. I pray you would do a great work in her body. I pray you would do a great work in her soul. I pray that in a way the enemy could never imagine that this pain would be a platform for your glory through her life in ways she would never even imagine. Give her peace, God. Let her know that you're right there holding her hand. God, that you're near to the brokenhearted. She wrestles through a lot of pain. We hurt for her, God. I, I don't end this prayer with a sense of resolved, happy. I'm burdened for my sister. I ask you to help her, please. We love her. We know you love her more. Show us how we can encourage, not overburden her, but encourage her. Help us. We ask this for your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Next week, fifth Sunday.